Hi everybody, welcome to another Real Estate Sessions Rewind episode. This week, we're headed back to June of 2022. This episode featured Brad Allen, owner of The Art of Real Estate in Columbia, South Carolina. Fantastic episode with Brad sharing a lot of great tips and tricks and how to build a team, how to build a community, how to build a culture. We'll be back next week with another live episode, but I know you'll enjoy this. Cheers. And then I tell them, like, we're looking for people that are hungry, humble, and smart. That's it. You don't need to know real estate. I don't need to be, I don't need you to have experience. We can help you, but we just need to know that you're those three things. Um, and if they can agree to that and they're open to learn, like we, we've had some good success helping agents reach their potential. You're listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Risser, Executive Vice President, Strategic Partnerships with Rate My Agent a digital marketing platform designed to help great agents harness the power of verified reviews. For more information, head on over to ratemyagent.com. Listen in as I interview industry leaders and get their stories and journeys to the world of real estate. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 321 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for telling a friend. It's how we continue to grow this little program. (laughs) in our little corner of the internet. This week, we're going to South Carolina. Yeah, going to the South, deep South. And we're going to talk to Brad Allen. Brad Allen is the broker owner of the Art of Real Estate Brokerage. Uh, We're going to talk about that name because I think it's awesome. We're going to talk a lot about South Carolina and really how Brad got into the business, his, uh, his views and his look at culture and his look at what the customer experience should be is really, really important. And for any broker owners listening, he's got some great advice on how to kind of roll out some of the things he was able to to do in Columbia, South Carolina. So let's get this thing started. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad to finally be on your podcast, okay? Finally, I've made my thing. We connected through Winman, like a lot of the people that I talked to on the show. Maybe it's it wasn't a direct connection for some. It was you know through other channels, but this was direct. You and I both worked as as ambassadors, and and it's a fun job. And sometimes uh, uh, harrowing. How's that? Is that a good word? Okay, <laughs> yeah, good. I'll go with that. Um, <laughs> but but I, first of all, I like to start at the beginning with my guests. I want to find first. I mean, I audibly gasped when I was looking through your stuff online and saw that you were raised in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Now, for golfers out there, it's kind of like one or two or three of the meccas in the United States. Right. Tell me, it was awesome growing up in Myrtle Beach. It was okay at best. Um, It's the place that, you know, there's everything to do if you're a tourist and you feel like there's nothing to do as a local. I mean, I think one a year and a half in high school, I didn't even go to the beach and I live half a mile from the beach. So like, it's just one of those things that just, it doesn't, doesn't resonate. Now, looking back, it's fun to take my kids, but growing up, it's one of those places that, um, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. You you know, my, my guess is that a lot of the locals there probably are, are employed by the resorts because in the golf, there's so much going on there. I can't remember the number. It's, it's 30, 40, 50 golf courses within, you know, a, a, a short drive yeah. in that area. Yeah. It used to be 90 golf courses and 30 square miles about 15 years ago. And a lot of them closed and become developments, but yeah, it was a lot. Wow. So you had a couple of different gigs in there. I'm just guessing, you know, you probably worked uh, in the service industry, but did you work on the golf side too? Let's talk about some of the things you did, you know, living in, living in Myrtle beach. Yeah. So obviously it's a tourist town. There's not really industry in Myrtle beach. It is all catering to tourism. So yeah, service industry is kind of how you come up. Um, That is why most of the high schools there have really bad sports teams because 
you know, we didn't have first weeks. We went to work. You know, I worked bike weeks growing up in, in college. Uh, I can't share those stories online. Uh, they're too graphic. Um, but I did. I grew up in restaurants for the most part. I did some landscaping as well. But I grew up in restaurants, and it was really impactful for me. And it's one of the few experiences um, that I think has really shaped my business and my mentality. Knowing that the consumer is always right, which we want to tell people that's the case. But let's be honest, they're, they're not. But it allows me to play chess because I know when somebody's upset, I know I can make them happy, but I also don't have to give up my firstborn to do it. And I really think it's impactful um, growing up the beach where you see people sometimes driving 8, 9, 10, 11 hours. Heck, a lot of Canadians come down there in March and they're spending their entire year's savings to go on vacation. And how awesome is it that you are able to serve these people knowing that this is where they want to go. So it's really helped me to, to learn the value of a dollar and how people spend their dollars and how you need to make sure they come back. Because the one restaurant I worked at, we'd go on three and a half hour waits and people had come there religiously for 30 years. And the food was okay at best, but it was the experience, it was the memories, and it's how they felt when they were there. And they were clients for life. And that is something I strive to do in our business. Um, even though I don't fry oysters, we do something a little different. We're going to talk about that as we get deeper into um, what you're doing. The fact that, yeah, you really have taken that and created a brokerage that's built around those same philosophies, which is super cool. So we'll talk about that shortly. But first, golf side. Did you do something on the golf side ever? Um, you know, I know the golfer in me. I'm always kind of checking yeah. out. I wanted to go to school to be a golf, uh, golf course architect. Um, so I actually did a trade school for half a day, two years in high school as a trade school uh, to do golf course landscape architecture or management, excuse me. And um, I was the president of our FFA chapter, which was a joke because we were pretty boys that drove golf carts and stuff and everybody else like tractor pulling and like hog raising. So um, yeah, I, golf, golfing is a big, big part of it. And um, I'm a horrible golfer, but I love to get out there and uh, take a trench from the tee box to the hole. That's all. FFA can, can <laughs> apply to golf course. It's <laughs> awesome. I did not know that. <laughs> I got to rethink my FFA thoughts. Um <laughs> Give me, give me the biggest misconception about South Carolina. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are one of the top move to destinations right now. And your dollar does go a long way in South Carolina. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is, you know, people think that they can bring their way of life to South Carolina and that we're just so grateful that you're here. And let's be honest, we're a don't tread on me state. Like everybody gets along. Like we just, everybody wants to be left alone. And so, um, yeah, people can definitely bring their money, but if they can kind of leave some of their idiosyncrasies behind, they'll have a lot better time in the South. Um, but we are, we're polite. We're going to be nice to your face, but like, don't, don't, don't look twice at a, a Southerner and, uh, and spite them. They will, they will get you back. I promise. <laughs> so good <laughs> advice for uh, all the listeners up in the Northeast. Just yeah. <laughs> take it easy when you get there. Let's move on now. You're out of high school. You're, you're thinking about college. There had to be a career path you were thinking about, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, going through high school, um, I knew I wanted to go to college, not sure what I wanted to exactly do. So I actually attended the University of South Carolina and started a degree in criminology. So I wanted to go either law school or federal law enforcement. That's the path I went down, took a lot of ologies. And so funny fact, so I was a criminology major with enough credits, I just didn't want the paper, to be a Southern Studies minor and a African-American Women's Studies minor because I took all of those classes so I didn't have to take a lot of math. Um, so I'm very well versed, uh, in the allergies. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, that was the same. I was the same kind of guy, just the minimum math required to get through. Yeah. yeah. I'm not an engineer, not a developer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously, um, you're not in that, uh, line of work. You did something wow. different. So what'd you yeah. do right out of school? 
Yeah. So actually back in college, I did a, I worked at a law firm being a runner and there were a huge foreclosure law firm. And one of the older attorneys pulled me aside one day when he gave me a $20 million check to take to a courthouse to buy some land and said, son, don't be a dirt attorney. And I was like, okay, all right. So it was like, well, if I'm not gonna be a dirt attorney, what can I do to make as much money, but also the same realm. And so I actually went straight into real estate. Like I graduated, I took my final exams took the first week of real estate school, graduated second week of real estate school and was licensed in the June 6th of 06. So straight in. Did you stay in Columbia? I did. And so um, that taught me a lot of lessons, right? So the only thing I knew about Columbia was bars, restaurants, and college. And so I decided to start a career off of networking, which I didn't have one. So that Mm -hmm. really helped propel me on how I train and bring on younger agents in my company because real estate's not set up for somebody that's 22 to... I'm going to argue 27. It's just not set up for people like that. So okay. uh, it helped me really instill on agents now. But yeah, I went straight into real estate and um, haven't looked back. What's your What was your first brokerage? Yeah, it was Prudential. And so okay. back when they were like top four, right? And I remember yeah. walking in, they had a recruiter. And I remember going in, coming out, going, they want to give me a job. And my mom's like, how much are they paying you? I'm like, uh, nothing. It's But I got to spend all this money. It was the damnedest. I was so excited. I was so excited. But uh quickly found out what it really meant. And it was really hard. Yeah. Which, which is once again, something else you pass along mm-hmm. <laughs> as you Absolutely. grow your own. So you, you mentioned um, in your, your biography, you know, you would, you're, we talk about how quickly you connected um, with your partner now, Mary Lane Sloan. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that meeting. It obviously it was very important in your, you know, yeah. in your life. It, it changed the direction of where you were headed. Absolutely. So Mary Lane's uh two or three years older than I am. She was already a state certified teacher and she was teaching fourth grade. And she decided to um, shadow my previous, my, our, our previous partner, myself, um, and on spring break. And she's like, hey, I'm just gonna, you know, sell houses when I'm not working, uh, selling, uh, teaching or whatever. And quickly became relevant that she was uh, really good at it. So yeah, we kind of just kind of were meshed together and we've been partners for 16 years now. And usually people say partnerships don't work and I agree with them. But this one's been really, really cool. And it has. It's changed the trajectory. And we're not like necessarily best friends. We don't talk a lot. Like we talk at the office. We see each other a lot. And we run the company together. But we're not hanging out on Friday nights drinking beer in the garage. Like it's truly a, a cool, cool dynamic. And so I've been very fortunate to have her in my life and uh, help us grow this thing the right way. Were you at Prudential when you first built the Art of Real Estate team? Let's talk about that. I mean, I first of all, I dig the name. I, I know there's a story in there, I'm hoping, uh, that you're going to share with us. And then, you know, let's talk about, you know, you had to be thinking, because I know how you are, Brad. You had to be thinking, we're going to be different than everybody else. And this is right. why we're going to be different. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So we actually started a team before teams were cool. And the way we did that is our pre- we had a previous partner. And she was busy. She was in her late 20s at that point. She had kids in school and she was a perfectionist in a good way. And she would not take more than about six clients at a time because she wanted to give them an exceptional experience. And I get in there and I'm like, you know what? Let me help you. You go find the business. I'll handle it. And so it helped me take people from sticky notes to a database. It helped me put processes in place. And that's when Mary Lane came on and she started as a buyer's agent with us. And then we brought in another team member and we put all these processes in place because we realized at that time, it was about to be the recession. We were in the early 20s. A lot of the people that were in their early 30s had gotten out because they had families to feed. And it was tough for them because in, in reality, I feel like they weren't trained probably well and, and the earlier careers. So when it got tough, they had to get on. And we created a system and we created a team. And that allowed us to give an exceptional experience and take on more clients. 
So I think that's what really dawned on me is that a lot of people can find their business, but without the structure, they can't handle it. And um, we started adding people and we added a lot of wrong people. And then we added some right people and then a lot more wrong people. And we finally started to find our rhythm and we're still working on that 16 years later. Tell me how fast do you know you hired the wrong person? Oh my gosh. Oh, I mean, sometimes you know it when you're in the interview and you're like, this can go one of two ways. Ah. And I never want to be the guy that like doesn't hire a rock star because they just had a bad interview or that aren't open to certain things. But also it can go the other way too very quickly. And I'm one of the few broker owners that I will, I, I fired some of the other day, an agent that was finding business left and right, but could not explain the contract, even though he's been trained on it 17 times, it's just a liability and a bad for our brand. So I'm not a body shop and we do, we, we, we will let people go. Yeah. Let's come back to the name. How do, how do you, how do you come up with that name? Yeah. So full transparency. And, um, it's funny that our previous partner, her name was Andrea Reynolds and she's still a badass realtor, sells a lot of houses. And so we kind of worked underneath her as a team. And so we were the Andrea Reynolds team, the art of real estate. And so as we had some uh, legal changes, uh, she had gone on to a different company and we retained the brands and everything else. But it was, a, it was a tagline onto our previous team name, which helps me when I talk to other team leaders or owners going, don't name it after yourself. Like, here's why. <laughs> name it yeah. after something different. But we've always said that we have a philosophy. We have a way of doing things and there is an art to it. And so if we can continue to give that delivery, it, it works really well. If I'm an agent who's sitting there talking to you and trying to understand what your what it's like to work there. And we'll talk more about what culture means to you. But what are some things? And I, I guarantee I know I know you again. I know that you're, you're, there's a certain rhythm and a certain um, way of you kind of laying out to somebody in 30 seconds what matters for people yeah. that work in that team. Yeah. So the way I like to explain it to agents because a lot of times agents feel like they are the LeBron James of the deal. And I'm like, listen, you, we're all a big circle. We're all a big circle. We all have points. Like we have 15 staff people. It's like, you are a part of that circle. Your job is to deliver and handle the client and give them an exceptional experience and be the quarterback. But it's the listing coordinator's job to make sure this happens and this happens. It's my job to make sure that this happens. And so if everybody does their job, it's a smooth, fluid circle. It's like a wheel going down the road, but there's a flat spot. Everybody's going to know it. It's going to be clunky and it's not going to be a great ride. So I usually start off with that. And then I tell them, like, we're looking for people that are hungry, humble, and smart. That's it. You don't need to know real estate. I don't need to be, I don't need you to have experience. We can help you, but we just need to know that you're those three things. Um, and if they can agree to that and they're open to learn, like we, we've had some good success helping agents reach their potential. All right. So it's 2013 or 2012, maybe. And you start thinking, we got to have our own. We got to have yeah. our own brokerage. Yeah. And I, I've talked to a lot of different broker owners who it's, there's always a story. It's, it's, it can be tough. It could have been, oh, you know, we had no, we had a perfect, they had a mentor that just walked us through it. What, what's your story for how you launched that brokerage? Yeah. So we were fortunate in a couple of different aspects. 2009, we had just changed Prudential franchises to a new one and recession got hot and heavy. The gentleman that owned our company owned several different businesses building and he's a very wealthy guy. And so he said, Hey, you're the least um, profitable. So we're shutting it down. So mm -hmm. myself, our previous partner and two other people said, Hey, give it to us, make it look good. And we'll, we'll take it on. And so I got my feet wet pretty quickly in 2009 of owning a company and <laughs> quickly sold it back to our other partners. Cause it was just like, we are not going to get along through it. 
And so we signed a non-compete. I'm telling you this all for a reason. We signed a non-compete yeah. and stayed there for about three years. And we did about 85% of the business, the entire company, just our team. And so what happened at that point was at the, at the time he was going to shut us down, we looked at all the companies, all the big names, interviewed with mm-hmm. them, thought about just shutting it down and going to work with them. And then fast forward, Brookfield bought Prudential and flipped us to Home Services of America, which is brilliant. It was the coolest thing ever. But at that point, we're like, listen, we're spending a lot of money on brand recognition. We're going to have to spend a lot of money to turn all our stuff over to Brookshire Hathaway. So let's just go down this rabbit trail one more time and see what's out there. And I think our uh, franchise agreement was coming up. So we started, we hired a coach, a business coach, not a real estate coach, and said, hey, if we opened our own company, what do we need to do? And it was three intensive days of mission and vision. Like, what do we actually want to do? Who's going to be owners? Because there's like seven of us, but only three of us came out owners. We had some hard conversations. Um, and we were about a year before we actually jumped out of our current brokerage. And so we just kept going through it and saying, hey, is this a better, should we open a market center for Keller Williams, which was an option? Should we do this? Should we do this? And we just kind of really did our due diligence. So it was not a, a, a quick decision. Um, it was really in depth. And we just decided at the last moment that uh, why fly somebody's, somebody else's flag on our building if it's all our money and we can do it differently. So we just took that money that we were given Warren Buffett and put in the staff. So it just, it was a, a little difference, but it, it helped us knowing who we were, but opening a brokerage is not for everybody. It's not profitable half the time. Like it is not, if it's somebody's goal, they got to be really into it because it's not easy and it's not the best route for a lot of people. Yeah. The word margins just overtakes your life, <laughs> right? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. It's a constant yeah. battle. Agents want right. as much money as possible. You've got to make much money to pay everybody. The staff wants more money. It's, it's tough. Yeah. It's real tough. Yeah. As, you're, as you've grown the brokerage, uh, affiliate operations have been a big part of what you're doing, right? The, yes, the first yeah. one of all, it wasn't title like I always expect to see. You went with insurance first. Yeah, yeah. I, why insurance? I don't really know if I know another team that brought on insurance into the, the fold. Yeah, so we this was our pandemic response. So two years before the pandemic, we went down the rabbit trail and it just wasn't going to work out for us. Insurance is really hard. And it's like a mafia, by the way. Like the way the carriers work, like they they control everything. Um, so I was fortunate when the pandemic happened. We did fine, just like every other real estate company. And my partner and I were like, hey, we've got people in place to help run the company. So why don't you try and find other aspects for making money? So if this happens again or the recession happens again, we have some other avenues. So we started the insurance company. We're very fortunate that team up with a, a company that helped us get a lot of carriers and I was able to acquire a great producer that had experience that wanted to come help us. But the reason is we're doing five or 600 transactions and 600 to 60% of those are buyers. And I started looking at it. And when do most people get their insurance? Well, it's when the lender goes, Hey, you need it. I got a friend. Let me get you a quote. You don't know if it's the best quote. And also insurance is notorious for being poor customer service. So, yep. If I can have a great insurance experience too, which nobody wants in to talk about insurance, like it's not a fun thing to talk about, but everybody has to have it. So if I can give them a great experience that keeps them in the real estate umbrella as well, then it only helps my agents. It helps me give our clients a good experience and it helps me stay in front of the clients in a different manner. So it, to us, it really kind of went hand in hand. Um, and it's not as hard as most people think, but it's, uh, it's a little bit to get going. Are, are you shocked that it's not more popular? As a as an add-on, you know, as a you know, kind of a, as if someone's building the all-in-one solution, I'm just shocked. I don't see very many people doing it. Yeah, the money's not great. I mean, to be honest with you, if you had a car auto policy that was a thousand dollars total, we might get somewhere between a hundred and hundred and fifty bucks total. Mm-hmm. 
for that person for the six or six months or a year. So it's, it's got a process to it. But if you look at the snowball effects, if you really do look long term, so we were not making money off this venture, and I probably won't for several, several years. But in 10 years, if we have, you know, 5,000 clients, that's a good little retirement system. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's the residuals and all that stuff that keeps uh, as the customers are taken care of and they stick around. That's yeah. where that that makes. So you the person you brought in had the the proper licensing and all those weird number yes. test things they got to take. Yeah, and I and I actually got licensed in insurance. Uh, okay. Don't ask don't ask me much about it, but I did pass all the tests and do that because I at least wanted to have a backup. But um, yeah. yeah, no, she uh, she has the experience because. They were expecting us to do like four policies a month if we were lucky, if I was doing it. Uh, yeah. we, we ended our first year really, really far above that with about 500. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's to her. It's to her, not to me. Yeah, we just had the people. Yeah. Um, mortgage is next. Is that right? It is. We are up and going. Yeah. So how, how, how was that uh, firing that up? Yeah. So the cool part is I met these people at Inman back in Vegas. I've had people approach me about doing a joint venture with mortgages. And that's why I went insurance first. Um, one, because mortgages can seem slick willy to me doing a joint venture. Like, yeah. is this really the best company to help my clients? And if, if you're putting the client at the beginning of every single question, then some of these companies are like, that's not good for them because they're stuck in this box and it's not a good outlet. But it has worked really well. And again, we're just getting up and going. But I've interviewed a lot of people that they have already done it with, and it's turned out to be really good. Again, if you look at it, doing five, 600 transactions, I'm not making my agents, nor could I legally, use this, force this lender on anybody. And we've got some, some of my best friends are lenders. So I'm not trying to take their business. We, we came up with a term, I'm trying to get the spillage. I'm trying to get the ones that go, yeah. hey, I don't know anybody. And we have somebody now in-house in the process. And to be honest, when I started real estate, I had a, we had an in-house lender with the Prudential franchise. And it was, I can't tell you the number of the, the amount of knowledge I got from this guy where I could walk in his office and go, Hey, what does this mean? Or I'd bring our clients in and sit them down and say, Hey, cause I always say the lenders, the architect and the, and the agents are the builders. You tell us what the deal needs to look like and we got to go build it. And so if we can have that at the very beginning, think of how smooth that process is. And yeah. real estate's very clunky. It's, Hey, go get pre-approved. Hey, go get insurance. Hey, look at houses. But all three don't communicate very well. So my job is to give a holistic experience to the people that want it to make it hopefully smooth and to make my agents' uh, lives a little bit easier. Right. Now, I, I, you know, as an old title guy, I've got to ask the question, if you've got the architect and the builder, what, what, what's title and escrow? Ooh, the guy behind the elephant cleaning it all up. Isn't that what it is? <laughs> that's, you know what? That's exactly right. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> that's, and that's not an insult. That's a, that's a hard job. Yeah, <laughs> no trying to keep all that running together. I always called us the, uh, the the adult in the room. You know, that was kind of, a, that's, I think that's a good way to look at escrow. Yeah, title. So, that's yeah. funny. If, if you, if a, I love asking these questions to people that have done this. Um, as someone who's gone through it, any words of advice to a broker that decides they want to go this route? Yeah, um, I'd look at it. I really would. I'd probably do, okay. uh, I would do mortgages first, but I've been very fortunate. The mortgage lender that I brought on has experience. My agents were already using her. She's younger. So she's on TikTok and some other things that really mesh with our company. So mm. title, I mean, uh, insurance would not be the same without the producer already have with the experience. And mortgages wouldn't be either. So You've got if you're going to do it, you got to have the right people. I can't just bring in a rando person and expect my agents to like them. But if you're doing the volume, I don't see why you wouldn't look at it. Not from a sleazy, how much more money can I put into my pocket way, but uh, how can I enhance the consumer experience? 
And the byproduct is with everything that's going on in real estate, with all the hedge funds and everybody getting into the space, being a small independent is tough because, you know, we've got companies writing checks to my agents for more than they'll make in three years to, to go over there. So if I can make a little more per deal, make the consumer happy, make the process easier and make and make my life a little bit more wealthier, like I don't see how that hurts anybody. So I would say right. expand your outlook, but you've got to have somebody dedicated. I don't sell. I'm just a broker owner. I do not compete against my agents. So I have a little bit more time to focus on this. But if you if you don't, don't I mean, I wouldn't do it if you don't have the time to put towards it. Yeah. So this this brings us right back to the word culture with you and, and what you do. And I think you're very um, forward thinking in the way you handle things. Let's let's talk about as your as your team grows. You know, part of that part of the struggle, one of the toughest things to do. And I'm seeing that at Ray, my agent. Uh, you know, we're about a hundred people now, mm-hmm. and culture is non negotiable. That's the words right. that come out of the Australians, and it's a great it's a great <laughs> one liner, right? Yeah. And I'm sure you're the same way. What, how tough is it? And, and what are the things you're looking for when you're trying to keep, you know, the, the word is everyone aligned, right? Yeah. Everyone in the same place. And you yep. just mentioned it by finding a mortgage person you knew would fit. How do you, how do you keep that process going? Well, first and foremost, culture is tough. And I think a lot of people put a lot of burden on finding the right culture. And here's how I feel about culture. And I'm not saying I'm right. I feel like culture is a big pot of chili or stew or whatever. And each person you put in there can change the taste of that pot. Now, it's still chili or stew, right? But it's it's just affecting the flavor. But it's yeah. ever changing, and so yeah. uh, it's tough when you have a really tight uh, consumer centric group, and you bring a newbie in. It, it takes a little while for that person to fit in, and you've got to watch as the owner, broker, manager that those people are not assimilating, but like it's working. Like we've got all different walks yeah. of life people in our company, uh, religiously and politically, and age and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we decently get along. And the ones that don't, the ones that are just crazy, I get rid of them. I mean, I got one of a la- rid of a lady that she was going to do 50 deals that year, but she was absolutely batshit. And so like, we could not, it was affecting the entire culture. And I made my agents a promise that if I bring somebody on, they're going to be like-minded and train just as well as you are. I'm not just adding people to the pot to have a bigger thing of chili. And we're at our lowest agent count that we've ever had, um, but we are doing more volume. We're up 20%. So wow. it's hard. You get some divas. You got to have some. You got to have some interventions. But culture is led by the leadership, and we have a culture code. They have to agree to it, and we go over it every single meeting, and we talk through the different points that we're professionals. We show up on time. We prep. We polish. You know, our hustle is too important for cruise control. Like we go through all this stuff. And it's not that you have to grind your face off. It's just that we all know that we're there for the same reason, and that we don't have weak links in our industry in our in our uh, organization. Yeah, that's wow, that's that's a great leadership style, right? I mean, that's exactly what you're be laying out there. Well, it's it's hard too. Like one of ours is like you have to be nice, and I'm like, all right, I get it. I don't I do all of them, but I try sometimes. <laughs> so it is. It, it calls me on the carpet too. You're not nice. <laughs> uh, I try to be. I do. Okay. I think I, I think you're being hard on yourself there. <laughs> um, we got to talk about the market. But the way I talk to people about it is, the, 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 I see the word shift showing up. You know, yep. more and more. That's like it's. Uh, the neighbor on tool time, he's like peeking over the fence, right? <laughs> Mr. Wilson, he's peeking yep. over the fence. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think we're we're in that we're gonna get corrected a little bit? What do you see for the next couple of years? Yeah, no, I hope we're I hope we go back towards a neutral market. Um, I think it's better for everybody. It's better for consumers, whether you're a seller or a buyer, it's better for agents and our home lives. Um, I do hope we get back to that. I don't see prices 
going down. I, I see a little bit of interest going down with the interest rates going up, but I think that's okay. What I'd love to see is this crazy over asking, throwing money at the wall crud. If somebody wants to pay full price for a house, so be it. But this stuff, um, that's just, it's gotten out of hand. And I think that that will help everybody. And, you know, in the South, especially, I don't see us slowing down anytime soon. If you look at everything that's happening, we're getting a lot of West Coasters and Northerners that are leaving their houses up there and selling them and coming down here. So we're not having them put their, their houses back in our bucket, our inventory. So they're taking out. The other people are taking out. We've got millennials that are starting to make money. They're taking out. They don't have a house to put back in. People that have low interest rates on their homes that are buying new ones, they're not, they're, they're going to Airbnb it or keep it as a rental. So like, we're not, we have a, we're going to have an inventory shortage in the Southeast, I think for a very long time. And so I kind of welcome uh, interest rates going up a little bit and a little bit of um, slowdown of the supply and demand, hopefully. Yeah. Have the builders come back for you there at least? To, I mean, I know they were gone everywhere for a long time, but have they started? Have they seen that? And at least maybe in a couple of years, there'll be a little bit of help. Yeah. We just noticed um, that. So DR Horton and those big guys have always been here, but like the next, yeah. the second, third and fourth haven't been, they just joined our market. Uh, being a small state, we do have land. So that's the thing is it's pushing out into rural areas. Um, I had a guy driving from Denver. He's a Zillow guy. He was our rep way back in the day. And he flew into Greenville driving to Columbia. And he's like, Hey man, like all the woods on the interstate 26, are there like big houses and developments behind that? Like in Denver where like if they're hidden, I was like, no homeboy, there's like one person per square mile there. So we're starting to see a lot of uh, infill, but the builders are showing up and I don't blame them. They're doing a lot of commission compression. The builders are, I don't necessarily mm -hmm. blame them because it's a supply and demand. It's the capitalism. Um, so I think it's really prudent on a lot of broker owners to lead the way on their agents on how to uh, get what to get paid, what they adequately feel they're necessarily needed to be. Brad, this has been great. Let me give you the final question. Everybody's answered this all the way back to Jay Thompson in 2015. What one piece of advice would you give a new agent just getting started? My one piece to new agents is you don't know anything. Okay. Your broker, your mentor is going to give you recommendations on what they have seen to be successful. And the one thing you can't do is saying, that is not me. What you have to say is, that's where I got to go. And how do I make it the way I want it done, but still get the job done? I get agents all the time. Hey, I want you to do a launch party. I'll pay for it. You're going to invite your friends. And they go, that's not me. I didn't ask you for that shoe. What I need you to do is listen. Be smart enough to listen and dumb enough to learn. That's all I need you to do right now. And we can make you a lot of money. 321 episodes into the Real Estate Sessions podcast. And that's the first time that's been the final answer which is super impressive. That's Thanks. Awesome. I love that. Brad, if, if anyone wants to reach out and get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Absolutely. I'm a real estate junkie, so I'm on every single website you could look up. But all of my socials are Brad Allen SC for South Carolina, um, even on Peloton, but don't look at my scores on Peloton. That's not my, that's not my crown jewel, I promise. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Brad, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for the time. And uh, I'm sure I'll see you at a conference soon. That's generally how we kind of connect. Yes, and sir. we saw you in New York and hopefully you'll be in Vegas and we'll, we'll have a chat. Absolutely. And a Bill. beer. Yes, absolutely. Right. Bill, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Sessions. Please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash RE Sessions to leave a review or a rating and subscribe to the Real Estate Sessions podcast at your favorite podcast listening app.